Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, the world's most obscure game is now playable for everyone. Turbocharger Atari STE. And we go inside the world of LucasArts adventure games with Eric Wilmunder. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our incredible mates at Bitmap Books. Now, of course, it is the Halloween weekend. Have you seen their new book, From Ants to Zombies, celebrating six decades of video game horror with more than 600 beautifully illustrated pages? We'll tell you more about that on the podcast in just a bit. In the meantime, you can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, of course, you know about PCBWay. As well as sponsoring YouTube channels and podcasts, they offer fully featured custom PCB prototyping with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer additional services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know about PCBWay are massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 401, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the show, the podcast that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games. Of course, brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last week and brings you a veteran of the industry on for a special interview in the second half of the show. And uh, I don't know about you guys, you're feeling like you've got a bit of a sugar hangover after too much birthday cake for the 400th episode over the weekend? (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering where you were going with that. I have a can of monster right now and I was like, how can he see me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I got your webcam turned on, Joe. Put a bit of tape over it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it was an incredible uh, week last week, just, you know, celebrating 400 episodes. We're not going to go on about it too much, but um, thank you to everyone who uh, got in touch to wish us, uh, wish us well on social media, the voicemails we've got as well. It was just, you know, very heartwarming to see so much love out there as well. And uh, don't know about you guys, but I- I'm well up for 400 more episodes of this show. Um, so long may it continue. And actually, the 400th episode celebrations continue into this week because uh, I think we barely scratched the surface with Eric Wilmunder, who was our guest on last week's show, because we've got another full hour with Eric on this week's podcast. Yeah, this is a, a very detailed hour as well, because before we kind of talked about, you know, the development and uh, the Scum Engine and also like Eric's history. And in this episode, we're going to go into the games. And man, there were some amazing Scum Engine games. And I was thinking, you know, some of the developments, like even just CD-ROM uh, coming mm. around at the time were huge. But uh, talky versions as well is one thing that we discuss in there. And, uh, you know, getting the voices working with it, the kind of animation. Games like, you know, Day of the Tentacle, which was just absolutely insane. Full Throttle as well, which is one that uh, you've not played, actually. No, I haven't played that. I mean, that's the thing. There's so many of those classic LucasArts adventure games that, you know, the Indiana Jones games, I've barely played them. Yeah. I know we've done episodes about them. Like, I really want to sit down and properly explore 
these games. Um, and that's the thing, because for those who aren't familiar, if you missed last week's show, basically the Scum Engine, it stood for the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. This was kind of the in-game engine that enabled all of those classic point-and-click adventure games, stuff like Day the Tentacle, the Monkey Island games as well. And really, I mean, that kind of brought adventure games into the next level because there were like, you know, the, the Sierra games had their own kind of point and click interface, didn't they? On games like Legend yeah, of Larry. Which we talk about as well in this yeah. interview. Yeah. We do actually. Yeah. Kind of how LucasArts kind of viewed Sierra's games as well. But you think before that, most adventure games were typing games, weren't they? And then Scum came along, give you a really simple point and click user interface um, and that verb system as well. And, you know, just a legendary interface that enabled all these classic games that we grew up playing. So this week, I mean, we kind of dropped off the interview last week after the introduction of Monkey Island 1. We kind yeah. of got up to there. So this week, we're going to take it basically from that through Monkey Island 2, through a load of those incredible games that did through as well. Through voice we'll as well, you know, video, um, 3D and uh, how much that engine developed. Yeah, and then it, the Curse of Monkey Island that came out in 97 was the final game that used the Scum Engine. So we talk about that, kind of the end of it, and why that happened and how Eric felt about that. Um, so you're going to really enjoy this. And we had some lovely comments last week, people saying it was one of their favourite interviews we've ever done, and uh, definitely is one of mine as well. So more from our guest, Eric Wilmunder, the co-creator of the Scum Engine, um, affectionately <laughs> nicknamed the Scum Lord. He'll be our special guest on the show in around half an hour from now. But of course, you know, the first half of the podcast, that's when we uh, geek out about what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. We're always there, you know, feverishly looking at social media and checking out the blogs and YouTube channels. So, you know, you don't have to catch up during the week. We do it all for you. And we'll bring you the headlines on every show. And at this one, I was very interested to see. Now, you know that you guys know that I've got a bit of affection for failed consoles, uh, what some people might call crap consoles. Yeah. I can't say I'd agree with that. Yeah, but, yeah, you know. <laughs> definitely. Big fan of the, the, uh, the Jaguar. <laughs> yeah, well, the Atari Jaguar, which, you know, it does get a lot of hate these days. I don't necessarily agree that it was a bad system. I just think that people got lazy with it and it just suffered from, you know, basically bad management, bad marketing. Uh, you know, there were some hardware flaws with that, admittedly. But, I mean, there was one game that, if you played it back in the day, really proved what the Atari Jaguar was capable of. Because you go back to... It's, you know, <laughs> not that the Jaguar had much of a heyday, but um, when it was on the market... The Jags version of Doom was actually considered to be the best console port. Now, I'm talking, you know, of the contemporary systems. If you put the uh, Atari Jaguar Doom up against the version on Xbox Game Pass, probably would wipe the floor with it, admittedly. But you compare it to systems like, you know, the Super Nintendo that was out then, or the, even the 3DO version that was you know, notoriously rushed and awful. The Jaguar actually had a really good version of Doom back in the day. I don't know if you guys have ever kind of watched videos or played that version before. Yeah, you know what? The, the different ports of doom always kind of confused me like i try, i struggle to keep up with it because it's like mm. every single one is like oh the snes version's got a really good i think it's like don't quote me on this but it's like the snes version's got a really good soundtrack but it's got terrible graphics the saturn mm. version has got really good graphics but it doesn't have a soundtrack or it's like the 32x one is like that uh, but the jaguar one it tends to be kind of all around pretty decent like it's got a decent soundtrack it's got decent graphics got decent frame rate and a decent screen like resolution kind of thing it's, it's quite funny you know we had a dave taylor on the podcast uh ep 323 and he talked about how when they were developing it you know they were overclocking and they were playing with the jag so much that they had to keep it in a fridge and yeah. kind of cool the <laughs> units down um which just shows how much uh effort they put into into that version of doom 
Well, I think the thing that really made it stand apart is um, you're right on most points there, Joe. Apart from the fact that it didn't have a soundtrack, that no, was um, what most people <laughs> nicknamed it. Silent Doom. Yeah. It was generally nicknamed back then. But the reason it was so good is because John Carmack from Mid Software actually did that port of Doom. Uh, and he said, you know, at the time, he said, actually, the Jaguar's got some really interesting hardware and obviously made it sing with that port of Doom. But the fact that it didn't have that kind of legendary soundtrack on there was kind of something that a lot of people kind of mark it down for. I must admit, when I play that version of Doom, mm. I actually don't mind the fact that it hasn't got the soundtrack on there because to me, you know, having that soundtrack, it gets a bit samey after a while anyway. And I think it actually makes it a bit creepier being able to hear like all the enemies and the doors and stuff, you know, actually makes it a bit more atmospheric. Yeah, Sound, uh, maybe a little bit more. I, I love the metal, though. <laughs> you know, going through yeah. and rampaging is kind of what it was about for me. Well, that is true, and I, I mean, you know, it is a, a part of Doom. You know that. You know that. As soon as you hear that music, you know it, it's just linked to that game now, isn't it? Forever. Um, but back in the day, the reason they said that the Atari version didn't have a soundtrack is because basically the system resources were fully allocated to the 3D environments and rendering it. That meant there wasn't enough processing power left over for music playback. Well, that is until today, because there are actually three new ports of legendary id Software FPS games that are now running on the Atari Jaguar. Now, the first one is basically an enhanced version of the original Doom, uh, the original Jaguar title, with um, some extra features, including in-game music, finally. Now, this is a version called Doom Slayer Edition. They've also got stuff in there like a, a Pro Controller support as well, you know, for the six-button Pro Controllers that they um, released. It actually got re-released a few years ago as well. There's a cheat menu on there as well. I think the save games, there's like loads of stuff that basically added into it. So you've got that new version of Doom for the Jaguar. But interestingly, they've all supported Doom 2 and Heretic for the Atari Jaguar now as well. Yeah, that, that is interesting because obviously it never got Doom 2 or Heretic. And no. Heretic, uh, I think, was ported to PS1. And um, and I, I always, I've never actually played Heretic. I've always liked the look of it. You know, mm. yeah, the, it the was, medieval, uh, it's Medieval Doom, isn't it? Medieval Doom, pretty much. Yeah, yeah kind of. It, Raven Software as well. They yeah. kind of, you know, worked with it and developed it. And it it was, yeah, it's kind of like Fantasy Doom. Um, but really, I think it was a bit more advanced as well, from what I remember. Yeah, it was a later game, wasn't it? I don't think much later, maybe, you know, six months or, or a year later. Um, but at the moment, these new ports, I mean, there is a YouTube video that I'll link up in our show notes. Uh, it just turns out this week, a lot of the stories we talk about involve watching, you know, 40-minute plus YouTube videos, because, you know, it's just the way it's gone this week with the news. Uh, this video is at two hours and a quarter long, uh, but luckily they have put chapters in there so you can jump through it. It was basically a live stream uh, from a YouTube channel called Zero Page Homebrew, who've got the world premiere of uh, these three new Atari Jaguar Doom and, and he uh, Heretic ports. So you can watch and basically, you know, skim through and see what they've done. Now, the Slayer edition, you know, is pretty much the original Doom, runs just as well from what I can see. There may be one or two frame drops. I mean, I haven't played the original Jaguar Doom for a while, but, you know, I think the sacrifice is worth it if you've got the music on there. Definitely doesn't look that much different. Doom 2, which was really just built on the same engine anyway, wasn't it? So, I mean, if you skim through this video to about the, the 1 hour 40 mark, uh, you can see Doom 2 running on there as well. And I've got to say, frame rate, I think, looks really smooth very playable. It looks like it's pretty much a finished port as well. Um, so it looks pretty close to completion, which I imagine, you know, if they've got the original Doom engine on there already, it wouldn't be that much extra work to get the Doom 2 maps on there. Yeah, it looks it looks pretty complete. Heretic is, you know, quite a way off. It's more of a yeah. kind of proof of concept. Um, but yeah, Doom I 2. I think it you know, really had nice uh, 
Sorry to interrupt. I think it had extra features as well, like look up and down and stuff in uh, mm. Heretic. So it might have been harder to implement. Um, and it looks like some of the palettes and the colours aren't uh, correctly done in it. Well, the big thing about the, the Jaguar version of Heretic so far is, uh, if, you, if you watch this demo, I think frame rate wise, it looks decent. Um, the enemies don't do anything. Yeah. They're just going to sit there. The enemies don't do anything. It It is quite muddy looking, but I know Heretic can hex and not yeah, darker games. <laughs> Um, so it does look a bit muddy, a bit washed out. Um, but yeah, it's funny to watch these gargoyles and money, mummies just kind of stand on the spot doing nothing or just trying to like moonwalk on the spot. Uh, but it's weird because they kind of look at you, they follow you with, the, with, your, with their eyes. Yeah, the, two, the 2D <laughs> sprite exactly. still kind of follows you. Um, and like Ravi yeah. says, some of the uh, the graphics, if you will, like the bottom menu and stuff like that, the colours yeah. on it are all like inverted and stuff. But, you know, to have it running on, you know, the original hardware there, you know, considering it's... I know it's meant to be 64-bit, but ultimately it was pretty much a 16-bit console. It looks good. Oh, let's meet in the middle, Joe. 32-bit. Come on, can we, can we agree on that at least? But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. These look really good at the moment. You can watch this video. Like I said, it's a world exclusive. There's no release dates for any of these at the moment. But looking at this, it looks like that Slayer Edition and Doom 2 are you know, pretty much ready to go from what we see on this live stream. Like I said, Heretic looks early stage. Probably going to be quite a bit more work on that. But hopefully, I mean, you know, fingers crossed we'll get that new version of Doom and Doom 2 for the Jaguar, um, which, you know, I, I know are going to be free and I'm going to charge money for these because, um, you know, Doom's open source now anyway, isn't it? So hopefully they can just shove that on a server somewhere and if uh, you've got one of the, the flashcards for your Jaguar, you can give it a download and hopefully play that soon. So it's always nice to see the more obscure consoles getting a bit of love and uh, getting some homebrew activity, I think. Now, speaking of obscure consoles, uh, how many of you guys have got a, a Nokia N-Gage in your collection? I haven't got one. I don't think. No? I was racking my brain when I was reading this story earlier on. I don't think I've ever played an N-Gage, you know. Haven't oh, you? Wow. I, I remember having them at college and, uh, you know, people would have the N-Gage and stuff, but they'd always kind of do this thing where they were like, don't play it for too long because the battery power's going to run out. <laughs> you need to take a phone call later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, for, for people that don't remember the N-Gage, I mean, basically it was at Nokia's 2003 attempt uh, basically combining a mobile phone and a games console. And actually, you know, interestingly, it did just celebrate its 20th birthday. It was released on the 7th of October in 2003. Um, there were quite a lot of design and functionality issues with the N-Gage. I remember the biggest ones were, it obviously had that kind of awkward design, didn't it, with the placement of the buttons and yeah. obviously had to incorporate the phone speaker and microphone. And I remember the thing that everyone ripped it for is when you took a phone call, I think it was nicknamed that side talking. You basically had to hold the edge of the, the yeah. device to your face to make phone calls, which looked uh, pretty ridiculous. But it's also, it, this was at a time when, you know, mobile gaming was like snake. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. that J2... ME stuff, which was kind of a bit later, the Java gaming. But this really had, you know, 3D games on it. And if you look now, people are using iPhones and they're casual gamers and they're just playing some amazing stuff on it. And I think the Engage really pushed that idea of uh, playing on a mobile phone. It just wasn't implemented that well. So if you wanted to change a car, you had to take the whole thing apart. And uh, you set the battery out, didn't you? Yeah. Change the and, yeah. and later on, uh, they had the QD, which kind of changed it but by then they'd messed up um yeah and like you said it was the it, it's 
been the 20th birthday and uh, there's an interesting exhibition that's opened in uh, the Finnish Museum of Games called uh, A Fantastic Failure. <laughs> and, uh, I um, quite like it because, uh, you know, Nokia's a, a Finnish company as well and they're, they're talking about, you know, uh, they've got exclusive stuff yeah. uh, of developers and designs uh, that weren't in the public as well. So, you know, they've they've got like some plans there they've got some extra stuff that's not been seen before do you, do you um, think in a an alternate reality you know where they decided when the engineers are sat in the boardroom they said let's not put the speaker on the side let's put it on the front because you know that's what it's all in the uk it probably ultimately came down to looking a bit of an idiot on your phone <laughs> and in an yeah. alternate reality it was a success because they put the speaker on the front rather than on the side for taking calls. <laughs> that changed everything. And it changed everything. Think? And right now, in 2023, we're all playing our Nokia home consoles and stuff. Well, it's <laughs> it's interesting as well. Um, they're kind of saying that the uh, Nokia's reputation was shaken as well because yeah. they, they said that, uh, you know, we've sold this many numbers and it wasn't the numbers that they'd actually sold. It was the numbers that they'd shipped to the retailers. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, they, they were trying to push it to become a huge success as well. But then you had stuff like, you know, the Gizmondo that followed afterwards, which uh, that story is absolutely mental as well. So, um, But I think with these these kind of casual, handheld, pioneering game phone kind of uh, uh, devices, it's, it's pretty interesting. And uh, I think it kind of did lay a foundation for uh, titles to come out. I'm sure there were a few. I remember Tony Hawk's... Uh, Tony oh, Hawk's. I've got a list here. Tomb Raider. Call of Duty came out on it. Wow. Yeah. I thought yeah, FIFA, FIFA was all right on there as well. Yeah, Tomb Raider was meant to be pretty decent. It was, it was a fully 3D version of Tomb mm. Raider, but the problem was is the, the screen's vertical, so you you literally couldn't see what you were trying to do when you're like platforming on Tomb Raider. Like, yeah. you, you know, imagine playing Tomb Raider, but it's completely zoomed in to like just all you can see is Lara. Like, I would have stuck to my uh, Tamagotchi. I mean, yeah. The battery life was better, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've got a list of some of the games that came out on X-Men. I'm not that familiar with the, the library. I know that Tomb Raider, like you said, you know, was considered good for what the machine was. But um, Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell apparently came out, and it. Civilization was on there. FIFA 2004, FIFA 2005, Spider-Man 2, uh, Tiger Woods PGA Tour 2. Elder Scrolls game the on Sims. there as well. Uh, I forget which one it is, but it's. I know it's particularly rare. It's the one that goes for a lot of money on there oh yeah uh yeah the elder scores travel shadow key there you go yeah it came out yeah. on there worms world party came out on there as well yeah like you said tony hawks pro skater so i mean there was some like you know what we call triple a games so it seemed like you know the industry was kind of behind it briefly because i guess it did seem like a good idea um they only sell three million of them though which wow. uh obviously yeah <laughs> yeah and like you look at other stuff like that obviously later on you've got the ds and stuff that really yeah. smashed it in game boy advance but um you know, stuff like the PS Vita and PSP and stuff didn't do amazingly well. Yeah, so I'm going to check out that exhibition that is running now in Finland. It's called A Fantastic Failure. So I'll link that up in our show notes and all the rest of the stories at theretrohour.com. Now, it seems like we're talking about obscure consoles and failures. Let's go for three in a row. What about the new one? Now, we've done episodes actually about the new one before. You want to summarise what the new one was, Ravi, for people that might not it's, be familiar with it? Uh, the, the new one was kind of a gaming system that was a standard. It was meant to be a standard built into DVD players, um, mm. which would kind of use the hardware of the DVD player and also enable you to have gaming. And uh, uh, people like Jeff Minter were also working on there. So there's a great uh, version of Tempest on there. 
Um, there are quite a few games released, but they're very rare. Like I have a occasional dreams of walking past a DVD player in a charity shop and seeing that nuance symbol. Yeah, <laughs> a little logo in the corner. Yeah, just going by. <laughs> well, you said there was a few games. There was actually only eight games eight released games, on the new one. A very small and commercial library. The controllers are very rare as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a thing. I think, you know, these came out in, I think it was like 2001, they were on the market. Like you said, it was meant to be another attempt at standardising game console hardware, a bit similar to the 3DO attempted like a decade before, yeah. um, but obviously a massive failure. There's only really, I think it was mainly Samsung um, and Toshiba um, DVD Yeah, like players. kind of DVD players produced by different companies, but with yeah. that nuance standard on it. So, I mean, not many people have got these. And today, if you look at the prices on eBay, they are eye-wateringly expensive. You know, if you'd have got one maybe 10, 15 years ago, they were quite cheap then. But like you said, I think the only way to really get one affordably now is uh, to buy some buy one off someone who just thinks it's a DVD player, essentially. So obviously, that's a, an obscure console in itself. But what about this game here that actually <laughs> could be possibly a contender for the most obscure game of all time, I think, Joe? Yeah, so uh, this is Crayon Shin-chan Free. I've heard of Shin-chan. He's, a, you know, I think think Japanese cartoon. I could be wrong. Um, it's a manga and anime, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> to get my head around kind of like this story, so the reason this game is so rare is it only came out in Korea. South Korea. South Korea. Yeah. And it only came out on the Samsung DVD N591 unit, which was the only model of a Neon, which was released in, in South Korea. And mm-hmm. because of the new one is actually region locked, <laughs> that's why the game became so obscure. Because so in South Korea, you got one DVD player that could play the new one, and then this one game that was exclusive to it. But on top of that, the fan base now this isn't completely confirmed, but on top of that, apparently this Samsung DVD player, the N five nine one, was also only released to a test market in one right. area in South Korea. So it's like you've got one unit of it, like one model of it, of the of this new one in South Korea, which was only released in one city. By and and it was also region locked as well, yeah, so you yeah. couldn't play it on any of the other new yeah, one devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it just became this like incredibly rare game. I say game, <laughs> but, but uh, it's now been preserved online yeah. uh, for piracy, for the high seas and emulation. For us to get our hands on and play, finally. It's what I've been waiting for. Well, there is a YouTube video that you can watch by uh, Leto Skin, which is uh, a long play, basically, of uh, the game, which uh, I've kind of been scrolling through the, the video. It kind of reminds me of like a, a crap version of the Simpsons arcade game. Yeah. I mean, it, in it, some it, ways. It surprisingly has a decent frame rate. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're doing this game down a bit. It's got it's got like nice hand drawn graphics in a kind of proper the rappery uh, mm-hmm. flat style, and I, yeah, I don't think it's as bad as 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 it, as it seems. You know, uh, yeah, it does look a bit PD initially when you look at it straight away, but um, I think maybe that's the manga style. You look at the main character; yeah. he does look like a very kind of hand drawn uh, crazy dude. So I think it's fitting in that style. Have you uh, watched, because if you watch the video, there's like a, a dog barking sound effect all the way through it as well that gets very old. Oh, I haven't watched it with so the sound. Yeah, I didn't watch it with the sound either. Yeah, you probably did right not to. Um, but yeah, basically it's been preserved now. Someone's removed the region lock. So that does mean, I mean I'm not sure whether the, uh, the new one had copy protection or whether you can just burn a DVD. 
and kind of play it on your system if you've got one. Because um, obviously, I mean, the new ones are, are quite obscure these days, whether there's kind of much of a, a modding scene or Everdrives or whatever, I'm not sure, any flashcard solutions. But there, there is actually files that you can download now. You can download an ISO off um, archive.org. I was looking whether there's any Nuon emulators, and the only one I came across is one called Nuance. Um, the, the last version of that seems like it was from... 2007. Oh, wow. There's a guy working on it called uh, Mike Perry, who, um, who sadly passed away when he was working on it. And there's a, there's a GitHub page where it says, you know, here are the files. You know, his family basically give them the source code to it. But it says it seems like nobody's picked up on this piece of history. So there's kind of no modern Nuon emulator. Although there is actually some updates on the GitHub from the last kind of year or so. Some people saying, you know, can I help out with this project? So I think that would be worth revisiting. I mean, Please let me know. If I think there is no uh, copy protection yeah, right. from what I've seen. Yes, I mean, whether this nuance emulator, I mean, I'll have a little play around with it this weekend because it does sound interesting. You know, I've always quite fancied exploring the nuance library. And if I got one, so I mean, you know me, I've almost got a full Atari Jaguar collection. So I think, you know, in my mind, I think if there's only eight games for it, they're probably quite attainable. But <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. think they you are. You see, other, other people yeah. go for like higher end, better systems. You're going yeah, the opposite really. direction, lower down. <laughs> So uh, it is nice to see, I mean, what, you know, is potentially one of the most obscure games ever uh, finally being available for more people to play. So if you want to download that file, I'll stick that in our show notes as well. Now, uh, let's talk about the Atari ST, more specifically the Atari STE. And I know some of our uh, Amiga fans are going to be like, you heretics, how can you talk about that, Dan and Ravi? Thing is, though, you know, obviously we're, we're kind of known for being Amiga fanboys, you know, unashamedly. We both have Atari STs, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got one recently. I'm, I'm yeah. loving it. It's a great system, yeah. yeah. I've had an Atari ST for about a decade now. And uh, the big news on kind of the Amiga hardware scene over the last couple of years has been a device called the Pi Storm. Now, the reason these have become so popular is basically back in the day, if you wanted to soup up your Amiga, you'd buy what was called an accelerator board, which was basically a faster CPU, often with some extra memory that you'd have on a circuit board that you'd plug into the bottom of your Amiga, essentially. And um, they'd often be quite expensive, wouldn't yeah, they? You know? Yeah, very expensive, actually. The whole the whole market of it, you know, for, for a long time, the accelerators, uh, you could only buy second-hand ones as well. There wasn't any new ones being created. So, mm. you know, these second-hand ones, like the Apollo ones and uh, Blizzard and stuff would, would be massively priced. I mean, today we've got, you know, solutions like the terrible fire cards that are, you know, fantastic. Um, and I've got one called the, the Warp 1260 in my Amiga 1200, but that uses a real, you know, 68060 CPU. And the vampires as well. The vampires are out there, you know, FPGA solutions. But the thing is, often the, these solutions are quite expensive. You know, that Warp card that I've got in my Amiga 1200, if you were to buy that, kit it out, probably talking about a thousand quid you know, for an expansion for a, a 30-year-old machine. So these uh, these Pi Storms are basically a way to harness the power of the modern Raspberry Pi and use them as an accelerator on the Amiga. And these have been very popular with people that want basically to, you know, soup up their machines over the last two or three years on the Amiga scene. But the news now is obviously the Atari ST community don't want to be left behind. So there is a great little video, which I'll link up in the show notes as well, from a YouTube channel called Technoshed. And he's basically made the Pi Storm STE, which is uh, a Pi Storm that basically fits inside the Atari STE and gives it a load of enhancements. Now, we were talking before we recorded, Ravi, about kind of our feelings on this, because I know you're not the biggest fan of these solutions yeah i, I I'm, a, I'm a fan of them because i think they're cheap but um I, which is good you know it means more people can kind of play accelerated titles and stuff um 
I'm a bit of a purist, so I'll probably get killed for saying this, but I don't see the I don't like the idea of putting another more powerful computer inside a computer to make that computer more powerful. If you kind of get what I mean, but um, I think I do like the idea that the Atari scene can also benefit from the Amiga scene and the hardware that's coming through. And I like the fact that it's all open source as well. I yeah. think that's really good because uh, a lot of these were like closed for a long time and it meant, you know, it kept prices up and stuff like that. So, yeah, and I guess it's the way to go. You know, the older hardware is getting more expensive, um, getting CPUs as well. And with this, you can upgrade the firmware, you can upgrade it and you can add new features in there. You can utilize stuff like the um, Ethernet in the other ones. But, um, you know, this one's a, an actual modified, like, little board that's obviously going to start out for the ste and then eventually they'll add like extra functions and it will grow and grow but i've always kind of seen this crossover as well i, I think with the vampire you could also um do atari modes on it and uh mm. you know load atari stuff and i think i think that's really nice actually and i'd love to see god you know pi store mega drive one day or um, you know it going on to other systems i just also think like what software are you going to run on that? That's always yeah. always the kind of question, isn't it? I, I see people uh, running, um, oh, what's it called? Elite and uh, uh, what's that one? Oh, Fr- Frontier. Frontier, that's it. Yeah. yeah, they always run Frontier as like, look how smooth Frontier's running, but it's still a pretty kind of basic title. I guess maybe rendering and stuff would be good. Um, I, I don't know enough about the Atari ST software library to see... Uh, anything but i think it's it's good you know cheap hardware that can do stuff fast that's open source big it up you know yeah and and if you look at the the amiga version it does have some problems i mean there are some games that kind of don't work properly with it and obviously it's kind of a a work in progress all the time you know they're constantly improving it and it's hell of a lot better than it you know it was like even a year ago um so i think that's one good thing about having it on a machine like the raspberry pi that you can just you know take the sd card out update it to a new version put it back in and it gets better and like we said, this is a, you know, it's very early days. So basically, it, um, it replaces the Atari's 68,000 CPU, and it gives you stuff like HDMI graphics. So you've basically got you know graphics card in there. You've got more memory. It's currently running it with 128 megabytes of RAM. Um, Which is mad. The, <laughs> you know, yeah, I love that. Atari yeah. ST. And it's got two virtual hard disks as well, which I think is, for me, that's a big draw because, you know, I haven't got like a hard disk solution on my SD. So I think, you know, the fact that this can basically have two virtual hard disks on there as well. Yeah, because I've got um, the uh, Ultra Satan and uh, mm. I was I was kind of using that. But, you know, that's a big clunky thing that you've got kind of sticking out the uh, expansion port as well. So, you know, having like an internal one would be quite nice and a neat solution. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of all hidden away inside. Um, and he said, you know, in terms of performance, he runs, um, there is sysinfo available for the Atari STA, and it runs uh, around 96 megahertz. He said, you know, the performance is basically on par with an accelerated Atari Falcon, you know, which, um, you know, for the price of a Raspberry Pi, which is about, you know, 45 quid, I think. For yeah, compared 3D. to getting a Falcon, you know, yeah, that's, which is that's, well over a, grand. that's a bargain. And that's the thing, you know, like, I talk a bit like a purist and stuff, but you know, if people can get more of an experience out of it and it's cheap, yeah, go for it, man. Yeah, to me, these kind of fall halfway between emulation and original hardware because, I mean, you are still using stuff like, you know, for example, when I've got it in my Amiga, I'm still using the Amiga's graphic chips on there if I want to or I can change it for the RTG. I'm still using the Amiga's floppy drive and the Amiga's mouse and the Amiga's display output and audio chips. So to me, it's basically, 
Yeah, like a souped-up accelerator card, really. That's the way I look at it. And when it's hidden away inside the machine, you don't really notice that it's running on a Raspberry Pi because, you know, when the experience gets that good, that it behaves like, you know, an original CPU accelerator. I think for all wants and purposes, you can treat it as such. Um, yeah, but there's, obviously the, the, there's other stuff like the MU68 uh, yeah. as well which which they might be able to add on to it i i'm not quite sure technically about the details there but um yeah i i i think it's it's good that both systems can kind of benefit off similar software and uh doing similar things as well and have it a standard that's kind of similar i mean he's got some problems with it at the moment he had to 3d print like a, a mount so it fits into the atari st's case because you know there are space constraints in there and there are a few like memory speed problems at the moment but actually there's a discord server they used to drive it. it's all open source so i'll link that up if you want to join that and um, help test it out and if you're a developer as well that wants to get involved in the the pi storm st project then um that is all open for uh, improving right now so it would be nice to kind of see it getting up to the level of the amiga one wouldn't it and you mentioned there about whether you could have you know, Pi Storm on the Mega Drive. And at first I thought, well, what would be the point of that? But I guess maybe you could have like a, a Raspberry Pi 32X oh, emulation yeah. solution oh, yeah. that you can plug in the Mega Drive. That's a good idea. Yeah, that could be quite nice. So, um, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, just having these these cheap add-ons um, for retro systems, I think, you know, more power to it. So I look forward to see what they do with that. Now, um, obviously, Halloween weekend, Joe. You got your, your spooky games ready for the My weekend? Spooky games. You know what? I, yeah, got them. I've, I've, I've not. Actually, I've been playing Crash Bandicoot, <laughs> so I need to. I need to. Sp- I suppose if you bumped into Crash Bandicoot in a dark alley, you'd be pretty creepy. I, well, yeah, that, that that yeah, any game character to be fair, I'd be a bit freaked <laughs> out. But yeah, I need to uh, spook it up a little bit. But um, this is the perfect way to get me in the spooky mood, or you know, at least start getting ready for the spooky mood. This is a uh, terabytes, which has just been announced, which is a uh, a documentary about the evolution of video game horror uh, or the evolution of horror gaming uh, if you will um, which looks really interesting this is by the same guys who did um, In Search of Darkness which was a three part documentary a kind of like all about the history of like horror in cinema and you know in film and stuff and Mm. kind of like the next step is you know fresh off the back of that is to go into well let's talk about it in video games because of you know, you've got your Resident Evils and your, your Silent Hills and stuff in Alone in the Darks, you know, which kind of like made it huge in the 90s. But this is giving you like, you know, there's so many more decades to it, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you know, the, the roots of horror in gaming, you know, is embedded from so much before that. And uh, it's really interesting because it's kind of in pre-production at the moment by the looks of things. And what's kind of cool about it is it's, it's they're not looking to do this as a Kickstarter or anything like that. Um, but what they are looking for is for people to kind of give their opinion on it. So yeah. if you go onto their red, onto their website, uh, which we'll put in the show notes, um, there's like a free step thing at the bottom. And then step two is to actually take a survey where they kind of ask, what would you like to see in the documentary? Would you like to kind of see the history of the storytelling, the, hus- the history of the game design, you know, nice. kind of exclusive interviews, um, you know, from the people who, you know, made these games, you know, starting with like, 3d monster maze all the way up to you know resident evil remakes of today kind of thing like you know what what obviously there's going to be elements of that throughout the entire documentary because of you know these are in search of darkness documentaries and um you know uh we actually had they did the fps one as well didn't they they? they did the fps one which was like four hours long these are really detailed in-depth 
documentaries. So they cover so much in them. And uh, yeah, they get kind of saying like, what do you want to see more of in it? Because we're going to see all of those things in the documentary. But, you know, I'm I'm really excited about this. And the FPS it's- one, they had like John Romero on there and John Carmack and stuff. So they're not, they don't just get like, you know, any, bold, any old person on it. They They get like the heavy hitters involved. It's weird because I'm a total wuss. Like I don't like <laughs> to watch, you know, horror films and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but horror games, you know, um, Dark Seed and stuff when I was a kid yeah. came from the desert as well. And then going into obviously your loves Resident Evil and uh, Silent Hill and stuff. We all remember those games when we were first completely shook or completely scared. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see the kind of evolution of that horror. And uh, I often found with the older games, you know, not knowing what's around the corner or mm. jump scares and mm. stuff like that can be done sometimes yeah. better than films. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because growing up, my pal, my best friend at school, he uh, he loved watching me play Resident Evil. Like he would sit there and watch, and I go, why don't you have a go? Why don't you play a, make your own save? And he says, I can't do it. It's too scary. And but the thing is, he could he could watch any film, watch people get ripped apart, you know, by zombies. You know, watch all of these crazy films. But as soon as it came to the controller in his in his hands, he said it was too yeah. scary because if he was in control of getting the person killed, like it was like him getting killed kind of thing. <laughs> it's like heart like, rate going yeah, on. Yeah, his heart rate and his <laughs> adrenaline would get going and stuff. And it really got me thinking because I took the survey last night, I filled it in, and it said why, you know, it's kind of like why horror, why horror games? What is it you love about them? And it was just like, you know... My first answer that came to my mind was I just wanted to cut put because it's wicked, like because I love it, yeah. like. But it really got me thinking, and it is. It's because of as Ravi just said, it's the adrenaline. It it, it puts it puts the controller in your hands, and it's what's around the next corner. And I've got to think about: Do I have enough ammo or enough health, or, or you know, the, the balls to actually go around the corner and see what's around there? So yeah, really excited for this, and just need to get my act together for some spooky games for this weekend at Halloween. <laughs> Oh, well, I was playing the um, Resident Evil on the Oculus yeah. um, Quest uh, last week. And again, it's just, uh, it, yeah, I mean, when you're in that game, if you run out of ammo and suddenly like, all the zombies start attacking you, it's like there's nothing scary. I nearly ripped the headset off. I was like, ooh. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you there. Uh, but this looks awesome. Like you said, the team behind it got some really good credentials as well. And I think, you know, in terms of kind of communities of gamers, you know, the horror mm. gaming fans are definitely one of the most passionate, aren't they? Yeah. So it's nice that they, you know, they're letting the community kind of steer the direction of this yeah. as well. So if you want to take that survey and check out the little teaser for that so far, I'll put that in the show notes. And of course, everything else we talk about, you find them all at theretrohour.com. Now, I do hope this weekend uh, you guys are going to be uh, dressed up for the, the Halloween hangout. You know I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not around like the Halloween Scrooge. <laughs> Get your pumpkins out. Yeah. Get your pumpkins out. I'll come as Simon the Sorcerer for you. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, it is uh, the Patrons Hangout Weekend because last Sunday of every month, that is when we get together. Basically, as many of our patrons that want to come on, we send the link out to everybody. Um, you can all come on and basically just hang out with us on Sunday night for a couple of hours, show off your pickups, you know, gaming room tours, nerd out, get advice, anything you want, really. It's just a great conversation with some really nice people. So we're going to be doing that this weekend. And actually, we've just recorded the uh, the latest episode of our patrons-only bonus podcast that we do for our gold members and above, the Retro Hour After Hours, and we went back to the year 1995. How much fun was it doing in 95? Oh, you know what? There was so much to talk about in 95. And it was quite funny as well because of, you know, I love reflecting on those years, like, because we don't just reflect on what happened in that year, but we talk about like 
where we were in life. And I had a bit of a crisis because of, yeah. I always assumed, I don't know why, that we got a PS1 brand new, you know, when they came out in the UK, like 95. And as it turns out, we were a bit of research and the games I got with it, I was, I, it was actually more like 97. I was like, oh, your entire childhood was a lie, Joe. Like, <laughs> you know, as we were filming, as we were chatting, I was like, oh my God, my entire life is a lie. <laughs> and we actually, we do video on the uh, the After Hours podcast. You can see Joe's face drop and you realise there's that moment as well. So uh, if you want to get access to that and all that previous 38 episodes of the Retro Hour After Hours, you'll unlock those if you join us as a patron this weekend. And also we give you the normal podcast early some weeks if I can get it edited in time. You get it ad free. You also get around 10 minutes of extra content. We do a few more news stories. So a really good time to join us on Patreon and all the details to sign up are at theretrohour.com and hopefully we'll see you for the Hangout this weekend. Now let's give a massive thank you to our longest running sponsor and that is our incredible mates at Bitmap Books. Now we're talking about horror because of, of course it's spooky season, Halloween weekend and how amazing does their latest book look. This is called From Ants to Zombies, Six Decades of Video Game Horror. This is up your street, Joe. Oh, man, this looks absolutely amazing. I had to count on my hands. Like, I was like, six decades? And I was like, oh, yeah, the 70s to now. That's six decades. I feel old. But yeah, man, wow. you know, <laughs> you know, just going back to what I was just talking about a minute ago with horror games in, in gaming and in video games, it's just absolutely incredible how much of a history is there now and how many games are actually there now and this actually features more than 130 horror games that are analyzed and contextualized across 13 different chapters um and there's just yeah there's like i think there's about 650 different pictures of artwork and you know in there as well from all these different games and you know your your, your big ones are in there your resident evils your alone in the darks 3d monster maze but there's all sorts in there as well. Darkstalkers, Splatterhouse, Deep Fear, which is a proper underrated gem. Dead Space games, Fear, all sorts. Doom, obviously, um, mm. just completely covered in there, you know. And I, and I love it because they're such easy reads, the bitmap books, because yeah. of, you know, they're not, they're not too text heavy. You know, just they do them so well, I don't yeah. they? Just jump off the page. They jump off the page. It's amazing. And then you just get your little reads in there. You get your little paragraphs in there about the games. And it's just, there's little bits of like information about it and it's such a good coffee table read just to have on the side and just the only thing like me constantly taking breaks from work uh, just to pick a book and kind of, kind of flick <laughs> through it like absolutely amazing and yeah beautiful book as always with the bitmap books yeah so um like you said they, they just really really do a great job at this and it covers the over 70 hardware platforms basically from the zx spectrum to the xbox series x nice. so if you're a fan of horror games um you can uh, get that book available to uh to pre-order from uh, 31st of october so that is obviously halloween so you can get a notification on their website right now and check out the rest of their books as well because you know we love sam and the team there are bitmap books who have sponsored our podcast for many years so uh, a big thank you to sam and the crew there and check out that book and the rest of them at bitmapbooks.com so just quickly, um, if you haven't left us a review on your favourite podcast app, can we ask that you take a second to do that if it's not too demanding? And if you want a good way to support this podcast, it is free, that'll just take you a couple of minutes. Because if you uh, leave us a nice review on, for example, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, helps us get in the charts in front of new people, and uh, basically a really simple way to get the podcast out there as well. I've been looking through, we had some lovely comments over the last few months on uh, on Apple Podcasts as well, so uh, they're really, really, you know, really appreciate Just help us, you know bit of inspiration to keep the show going isn't it when we get some lovely comments like that so um really really appreciate it if you'd like to leave us a comment then uh please do a little five-star review will help us get in front of new people always appreciated 
Right then, next, we're going to continue our epic two-part interview with the legendary Scumlord himself, going in-depth into those 90s LucasArts adventure games with Eric Wilmunder. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to delve into part two of our epic interview with Eric Wilmunder, of course, the co-creator of the legendary Scum Engine. Now, last week we finished the interview just getting into the first Monkey Island game. But obviously, as the 90s went along and technology was improving at a rapid pace, was it difficult to keep up to date with new graphics modes and new screen resolutions with the Scum Engine? Were you constantly improving it around that time? You know, it was... So I think I worked on the Scum Engine for at least 10, maybe a dozen years. It was, for me, it was great. It was sort of the constant in my universe. It's like, there, you know, you know, Scum just kept going and going and going. And even after Ron left to start Humongous, there was almost a notion inside the company. So Ron and I would meet pretty regularly, every six months or so, and we'd, we'd go out for pizza and go, you know, we've built this thing and and nobody really understands how powerful it is and and what could be accomplished with it. And you know, Ron decided to go off and start Humongous. He invited me up there, but I've I visited Seattle and I kind of like sunshine and and the warmth of Northern California <laughs> where I grew up. And uh, and on you know, on one visit I was there for lunch and and somebody made the mistake of saying, "Oh, you're so lucky! It's the first you know really nice day we've had all month." And it was June, and it was like the third week of June. It was like, no, I, that, that just wasn't my environment. But, you know, what I'm proud of is that, you know, even with the split, I both take a great amount of pride in the humongous games and what they built using the system, and even more pride in the, the games that we continued to build within LucasArts. But when you talk about sort of the evolution of Scum, one of the key things is that as much as possible, it was really built as a bunch of modular pieces. It, it wasn't quite Lego, but you know the controllers were the control systems were built as these independent things because you could use the keyboard and you could play it with a mouse and you could actually play it with a joystick. And in theory, you could play it with any type of pointing device and the game would work. But what it meant was all of those control systems were isolated and the sound system was isolated and the memory system you know was was isolated you know the the uh, the, the heat manager that we used so all of these parts you know came up came apart fairly independently and what it also meant was okay at between every project usually there'd be a conversation starting maybe 6 months bef- months before a new project would start up mm. And that conversation would be, what are we going to enhance? What are we going to do this year? 
And I don't have a single list, but I, somewhere I'd love to have a list. I, what I've got are task lists of what are all the features. So if I look at, I've got documents from, I think, Scum 4.0, and it's like, okay, we're going to add this, 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 this. There would be 20 or 30 things in there just for one new revision of the Scum engine. And so some of it was even evolving while the games were evolving. For example, Day of the Tentacle was not originally designed as a voice game. And what had happened was, Ron at Humongous, because they were their audience was were kids, they needed to have voice for that audience. Those, you know, they were targeting kids who couldn't read yet. And so they did some, you know, some uh experiments in voice. And a few months later we did our own experiments in voice. But you know, they were able to get their first products done. And sort of these side projects that I managed were let's take some of the older games and let's add voice and let's go to DVD. And, uh, or not DVD at that time, it would have been, you know, doing them in CD-ROM. Yeah. And the same thing with, you know, graphics and sound. And so the sound system was fairly independent. And when you look at, oh, I don't remember if it was Monkey 2. I think it was Monkey 2. The iMuse system you know, that it introduced. Exactly, yeah. exactly. When you first go into the uh, the pirate um Oh, you know, the, the docks and you can meet Wally, I think, for the first time. And, and you walk into each room and the music, they basically the sound team had developed a system where you'd have a particular musical beat, but then you could flow from the, the shared, I'm going to call it a corridor, but the shared walkway had its own theme. But then if you walked into the bar, it had its own theme and it would s- smoothly integrate the theme from outside to inside. And then when you left, you might get a couple measures of the bar scene as you're going back into the walkway, and then you're back into the walkway theme. And so, you know, here we are experimenting with all the triggers necessary to be able to to control that, to create a much more interesting acoustic universe. The same thing's true with sound. Like I mentioned with Day of the Tentacle, there was a lot of sound that was integrated as sound effects for the game. And I remember there's one... There's a close-up of somebody making a sound or making a noise at somebody's face. And because it had been done originally before there was going to be voice, they had this beautiful musical tone in the background, you know, this note or this musical piece playing of this exclamation. And it was, you know, in it, in it, as if, you know, as if it was going to ship that way on, on floppies, which may be the way it did. And then when we added voice, the character was saying something like what or whatever, you know, whatever the term was that now had this musical laid, you know, note laid along behind it that then complemented the the voice and the music in, in amazing ways. And so what was neat is over time, we just continually made these evolutionary changes uh, to the system. And sometimes it was numbers of colors so we went from the six, you know, one version it was we're going to go from 16 colors to 256. And then another version is we're going to go from uh, 32200 to 640, 480 graphics. And that, that might have been Curse of Monkey Island. But if you look at them, the system was there as a foundation, but we were able to continually evolve portions of it and make, make dramatic graphical or sound or voice or, or a user interface, you know, it was really, it was our wonderful sandbox that we got to continually play in and try making changes in as we were sort of evolving 
the games and evolving the system at the same time. And obviously Monkey Island 2, I mean, that was, uh, you know, an epic game when it came out. Biggest adventure game I'd ever seen. I mean, I mentioned, you know, the amount of discs it came on and having to go and buy a hard disc, you know, to really get the most out of that game on my Amiga. I mean, did like, uh, for example, would Ron come to you and say, I want the engine to do this? Would you kind of work closely with him and, you know, implement features that he wanted for the game, for example? How, how did that kind of work? You know, the, Ron was primarily focused, you know, so Chip had written the original scum compiler which was you know which was the language and then ron had been primarily focused on the interpreter but we got to a point where the language didn't change too much you know the the basic commands of starting a sound or setting a sound trigger or walking a character you know talking you know those things didn't evolve as much as the engine underneath changed you know there were occasionally you know new features we'd put in and try and i we had a command, I forget if we what we called it, kludge command or something like that, where we can experiment with new additions to the language and we put them in temporarily to basically try them out and then see how they work and evolve them, uh, evolve the new commands without having to part of it was this was a lot of this was before we had really even decent networks. And so if I put in a new command, it meant I had to walk around with eight floppy disks to give to eight different <laughs> yeah. team members. And, and then they'd have to rewrite all their old code and recompile it. With, it was just like, but it was much easier for me to just say, hey, I put in this one new command and you trigger it this way. It's kludge number three. And then if it works the way you like it, I'll turn kludge number three into a real command later. But let's, let's try it out this way. So I think where, where Ron was mostly involved is he wanted to focus on the gameplay and making the game great. And then what he you know burdened me with was, all right, you're going to need to get all these features in and working. And so that's where we would come up with these documents going through what are all the enhancements we want in the system. For example, you know, we want really fast drawing objects or we want objects that you can draw anywhere or we want... We want to be able to print, draw objects in the lower interface area that had only been text up till then, because now we want to have an interface where you can have graphical uh, inventory items. And so those were the key things where we try to get those features in and as early as possible. And then the later things in the sort of the mid-range would be optimizing, which is making sure that the performance worked across all the target machines. And then the last, the last couple of months on the project, we really wanted to have the system settled as much as possible and then only doing uh, critical bug fixes towards the end. We didn't want to be doing major new features towards the end of the project that could have ramifications. What, what was it kind of like working on the uh, Indiana Jones series as well? It must have been great having that, you know, out in the cinemas and then being able to see that as a, as a game. Those those were a lot of fun. I, you know, it was there was one frustrating side, which was because I was building the engine. Very often, I knew the games from building the engine. You know, the the designers would come to me and saying, "Hey, I'm trying to do this thing, this effect. Can you help me figure it out? Can we move something this big? Can you rewrite something to make it faster? Whatever it is." But so often, I knew how I knew what was going on both in the story and in the game. And so it kind of took away a little bit of that, that fresh 
part of playing the game for the first time because I was always playing the game, you know, from the beginning, all the parts that were there and getting to know them. There's even a puzzle that I remember in one of the indie games where there's a a plug in the ceiling and you pull it and water flows down because you need to empty your room or something. And I never even thought about the fact that, oh, there's this other room on the other side that has this solution to a puzzle because I always thought about it. You know, my principal focus was trying to figure out how to get that plug in the, the whip animation and get the water looking like it was flowing really well that I'd completely ignored the fact that, oh, there's even a room on the other side of this. That wasn't my primary <laughs> focus. My focus was making that, you know, that the room before it look great. And I guess you guys were kind of play testers as well. You know, it, the whole organization, we had, we had a philosophy of everybody in the organization is on the project. You know, we all take ownership of it. And if you have an idea, you know, go ahead and share it. If it's, you know, it's, if it doesn't get used, don't, don't feel bad about it. I remember something in one of the products. I don't remember if it was day of the tentacle or one of the other ones. And I remember mentioning an idea to Ron and then walking into a room with the designers later. And Ron was telling him this great idea. And I was initially, it's like, well, he didn't say Eric had this great idea. He just said, there's a great idea. And my initial reaction was, hey, I'm the guy who did that. And I could have gotten all surly. And then I realized, no, it's actually his job basically as a director is to take and filter all the ideas that he hears and try to combine them into a coherent story that gets the best of all of these, you know, all of the talent that's out there. And so... I think that that is really what the whole organization was there from top to bottom. We, For example, because I ran the game engine, I was dealing with, at any time, I might be dealing you know, with the core test group trying to, you know, we've got this piece of hardware and something isn't working right, the cursor or the mouse or whatever. But I was also working with the test organization because we've already shipped this product and somebody's experiencing this issue. And, you know, can we try to find a way to fix it? And I always took the attitude, which is, you know, if one customer out there has an issue with the engine, there might be a hundred people out there that had that same issue that didn't even take the time to report it. They just, you know, took it back to the store. So if I could fix the issues that were in test and the issues in customer support, then I can be building an engine that will make even more customers happy and making those changes and making the code cleaner. So it makes better Amiga versions and better Sega versions and better Nintendo versions, et cetera. That was the, you know, I think we had 12 different and Mac versions. I think there were about 12 different platforms that we supported mm. um, different versions of the scum games on it at one point. That's a crazy amount of systems to support, isn't it? When you come back to today. It, you know, it, it meant it was even more important for us to be doing what we were doing because mm-hmm. by isolating the graphics system from the sound system, from the controller system, it meant that if, because for example, on the first PC game, we supported five different graphics modes. We supported black and white Hercules, four color CGA, uh, 16 color EGA. MCGA, which was a new IBM mode that had 256 colors, but we only had 16 color art. So 
but we supported that mode and we supported Tandy had their own graphics standards. Yeah. So the fact that we were already supporting that many different graphics standards, in some ways I looked at other platforms like the Amiga as just extensions. And even when we moved to 256 colors, we wrote a whole bunch of tools that while we were supporting 256 colors, we could color space reduce. So we would uh, take the original artwork that was, you know, say 256 color backgrounds, and then we could basically reduce those down to the 32 colors that we would use on the Amiga. And then I would actually write code that the characters not only used to on the PC would just know, oh, this color uses this color slot, this color uses this color slot. And when you only had 16 colors and they were fixed, that was great. But eventually the costumes contained the RGB codes, the red, green, blue colors for every color used in the costume. And it could actually look in the background and say, hey, what's the best color for me to draw myself in? So the same indie that would say, walk around in a bright room, you could now put him in a cave and you would say, take the bright indie with all of his animations. And now I want you to make him a little browner and a little grayer to put him in the cave. And he would then remap himself to the cave palette to find the best colors possible in that circumstance. So we were sort of moving into a universal color space that it, it you could if whether you had 16 or 32 or 256 colors we were trying to pick the best uh the best palettes possible in all circumstances and give you the the best gameplay we felt was possible on all those platforms as well yeah and it always looked incredible i mean you know it worked really well that that kind of you know just in the palettes on the fly depending on the graphic system that you're working with and if I'm thinking of, you know, the industry in the, the late 80s and to like mid 90s, for example, you think of the two big players, obviously, in the adventure space were Lucasfilm slash LucasArts and obviously Sierra. And, you know, I know that Sierra were inspired by the Scum engine, you could say, when they uh, they launched their SCI engine as well. I mean, what was that kind of rivalry like internally between Lucasfilm Games and Sierra. I mean, were you kind of looking at what they were doing and was it a bit of a friendly rivalry? Was there some competition kind of going on? And what did you think of the games they were putting out? <laughs> well, sometimes it was friendlier than others. I remember attending one of the early game developers conference and and one of the uh, developers at Sierra was there and I made a comment and she, she was a little less than polite <laughs> in her reply. But, you know, it went the other way. I I own Sierra stock. And part of the reason is, you know, I'd get their quarterly or their annual reports. I would sometimes get, you know, preview information on what their products were. So I took them seriously. But I also always voted for Ken and I always voted down Roberta, you know, whenever it came to like, you know, do you, which board members do you want? Mm. And it was just my little poke that, you know, somewhere poor Roberta would go, well, why did you get this many votes? And I got three less. <laughs> I was always sort of hoping that that I could sort of turn that little that little knife to create problems at Sierra. I have no idea. They probably never even noticed. But you know, we had different products and different philosophies and they had some tremendous sales. We weren't that I don't think we were big fans of their games though because we didn't really like their gameplay solutions. It's like I remember I don't remember if it was a King's Quest or a Space Quest. There was a tree with roots in it. And you had cursor controls 
to try to walk this path between the roots. And if you touch the roots, you would die. Mm. And so you would spend like half an hour going up, down, right, 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 down, over, over, up, down, trying to walk, not touching the roots of this this damn tree. And some of the deaths in their games were brutal, weren't they? They were really brutal to the Oh, oh, they were. And there were also, there were puzzles that the only way you could solve a puzzle is you had to die to find out what the solution was. And then you could go back and you could, it's like, what kind of universe is that? Mm. And I think, I think we made, we made fun of it at some point. I think there's a, in one of the monkeys, there's a, you know, Guybrush falls off a cliff. Yeah. And and it, if and if this had been a Sierra game, you know he would have died. And instead, what we did was we we paused for a long moment, and he comes bouncing onto the screen and says, "Oh, there was a big rubber tree down there, or something <laughs> like that." And you know we didn't want the game to be hunting pixels and being killed off brutally every time. It was like that's that's not a game. Is sitting there with a baseball bat with nails sticking out of it just waiting to to abuse your your customers we wanted it to be good puzzles you know i still love some of the puzzles like in full throttle where you know you're pulling the chain trying to get the gate open and the gate keeps closing and the solution is you know you lock you know you pull the chain and lock the the chain in place and now you you know it's like those are like brilliant backwards puzzles to to solve and the solution is is very rewarding. Where to me, it always felt like I'd pull out a Sierra game, and I felt like you know it was. It, I, I felt like I was being abused, not entertained. Yeah, I remember Leisure Suit but Larry. So, you, you could die. So Leisure Suit Larry too. You could die at the airport by eating a a sandwich that had a bobby pin inside it. I remember it. It just kill you. Yeah, yeah. It, different philosophies yeah. and uh, <laughs> all, more power to them. They helped evolve the uh, you know the industry and. Uh, you know, and I know that they must have fans. I know that there was a sadness when, you know, certainly we were purchased by by Disney. And I guess at one point, you know, Disney basically decided to close down the group. And seeing the comments from the the fan base, really, you know, it was both sad and something that just gave me such tremendous pride because they they really did love so much the the work that they were that we were doing mm. and for many of them the close you know they were always like you holding out the hope of maybe someday they'll brian will do a a forge or maybe someday they'll do another monkey or they'll do another day of the tentacle or whatever you know whatever it may be and that was sort of the final you know oh there's no hope now it's you know they've they've been they've been shut down but they're still you know ron's still out there david fox was still out there you know with the with the new monkey, you know, it's a different style of and, animation. Yeah, Weed Park as well, yeah. which was another exactly. So we're still seeing seeing of evolution of of this type of game, and the audiences still love them. I I was wondering, um, you know, Lucasfilm Games, like how much did they get from other departments, like uh, Skywalker Sounds and stuff? How did they uh, benefit the games and development? You know, it's uh, many, many ways. So I'd mentioned how early on that, you know, the Fractal Engine was, you know, was conceived by Lauren Carpenter, who created the Genesis effect for Wrath of Khan. I can tell you uh, an Amiga story where we were doing one of the first Amiga projects, which was Zach McCracken. And 
David Fox had done the original, was the project lead on it, and Matt Kane was his his number two programmer. And Matt was a sound designer, and Matt was a musician. And so, you know, we went from Maniac that might have had 50 sounds in it to Zach, which had well over 200 and all kinds of sound effects. And And here I was in charge of the Amiga version of Zach, and I was working with a programmer, I think out of Utah, and I got a call one day, or I was checking in to to see how progress was. And what I heard was a story about, hey, I'm working on the sounds. And this morning, I uh, was trying to do the sound of the egg splat inside the microwave. And so I went out to the store, and I bought a bunch of water balloons. And then I set up the microphones in my bathtub, and I filled my bathtub half with water. And now that I filled up the water balloons and now I'm dropping the water balloons into the bathtub and I'm recording this and my, my, in the back of my head, I'm going, this is one sound and I've got 200 sounds and he just spent his entire morning. So that's like three months on this project, just doing the sound effects. <laughs> and I'm trying to get this thing shipped in the next, you know, you know, 30, 40 days or whatever it was. And this just isn't going to work. So I actually did two things. One was, brought him to, to basically work out of my office for the next few weeks to get the, the project back on, back on uh, schedule. And then secondly, I worked with Skywalker Sound. And Skywalker had this amazing CD set, which uh, a sound effect library. And if you wanted like footsteps, you'd go into, the, it had a catalog and it was like, what size shoe? You know, size nine. Okay, I could get, you know, and, and it wasn't that detailed, but it's like, I could get men's shoes footsteps, women's footsteps, children's footsteps on snow, on gravel, on a boardwalk. On the, you know, It's like you wanted a sound and you'd pull out this thing. And if the sound wasn't there, you're probably looking for something unnecessary. So you know, while I was waiting to, you know, to have the, the, uh, the coder you know, pack up and, and move over, move, you know, move out into my office for a while, I'd found, you know, trying to figure out, find a way to solve this problem. I found that we already, you know, within the company, we were already working on, on that problem uh, just for a different reason is that uh, Skywalker Sound did a lot of sound effect work. So I was able to get access to that and basically say, hey, let's just spend an afternoon. And I think we found more than 50% of the sounds just in a couple of hours. It's like, yep, that'll work. That'll work. That'll work. That'll work. You know, just write them down on a piece of paper. Let's now now let's go to the next CD and we'll just skip tracks while we're going through our sound list compared to what's on the CD. And we saved months worth of effort on that. And I think just general inspiration. I think that overall inside the entire company, there were so many people that, that, we're doing inspirational work, whether, you know, on the special effects side, um, I did a, oh, I, I flew back on a flight from Las Vegas and was chatting with the guy next to me. And I think he might've noticed, you know, I had a, a, a company shirt or a company jacket on. He said, Oh, uh, you know, I want, let me introduce myself. I'm, I'm working with you guys. I said, Oh, you know, what, what project? And he was working on, uh, the technology for Casper, mm. And he'd worked for this company that initially was doing motion capture, but they were doing things like, you know, I've got a paramecium swimming around inside a, inside a Petri dish and we're applying a certain chemical to it. 
and we're using tracking. And it used to be you'd literally have some intern come in and on a piece of paper draw an X where the paramecium was swimming around because they wanted to know was the a good reaction, a bad reaction. You know, I don't know exactly, but you know, they they it's like they got to do something better than this because so they so they developed a camera that could then track it, and then they took that on stages and stages to the point where you could now do the black bodysuit with the uh, reflective balls on the uh, on the elbows and the joints and turn that into a 3D model with a lot of work at the time. Mm. And so that was being used for Casper. And, you know, he invited me over to, to see their equipment. And I went back to our organization and they were working on Dark Forces or Jedi Knight. And I basically said, hey, guys, I can get the studio for an afternoon. Would you guys, you know, would you like to try some... 3D motion capture. And it was like, sure, that sounds great. And what was amazing to me was that the human brain has been evolving to, to see human motion for, let's just say, a million years. And then, you know, all of our mammalian ancestors for millions of years beyond that. And so we're basically designed to be able to look at something, maybe a football field away, and try to decide, is that a threat? Yeah. You know, it's like, is this person something I need to be worrying about? And all those little details in our eyes and our brains learn to recognize those. And yet, as the three D, the the three D animators were doing this, you know, they were moving the elbows and they were moving the shoulders and they were doing little movements, but they were they weren't human movements. They were they were very robotic because they were moving joints. And what we did is, you know, we were able to take this 3D motion capture and apply it to the models that we had, and everything changed because suddenly they moved like human beings. So even though they were low pixel count uh, and very, very crude 3D models at the times, they moved the way human beings did. They, you know, the head turned and then the shoulders turned to follow. You know, the arms would move in and out with the chest as the chest was breathing. You know, you get all these little subtle details that it, a regular animator was very challenged to try to be able to get that level of detail in these. And so there was another case where working across the organization. And then there was just, you know, sort of the inspiration from George himself, because George saw that at some point he computers and movies were going to intersect. Yeah. And he just had that notion that all these things are going to come together at some point. And he was willing to invest in our group and basically say, hey, I want you to try to figure out some of these things that we're going to need to know when these two, when these two areas do intersect. So we were sort of teaching the organization about interactive games. They were teaching us about movies and sound effects. And it was sort of creating this larger, you know, communal understanding of of what may be happening someday. Obviously, as the 90s went on, I mean, the games got more ambitious as well. And what one that kind of springs to mind is The Dig. And, you know, that was uh, an incredibly ambitious game. You had, you know, full acting, voice acting in there. Robert Patrick, Steve Blum was on it as well. A full digital orchestral score on there. Graphic and 3D animation from Industrial Light and Magic. And Brian Moriarty was initially the head of that project. And I do remember when we had him on the show and also we spoke to uh, Bill Tiller as well. And he mentioned that there was quite a 
a strained development process on that game. I mean, have you got any memories of that? Because I remember hearing that they, they went from the Scum engine to trying to do their own engine and then back to Scum again. I mean, you can of remember what happened there and why? My sense was they were going to start by building their own engine because, and they had something, you know, Story Droid or some, some name like that. And usually part of the development process is about, you know, nine months in, there was a public presentation of the game. So we were, a typical game might take 18 months to, to get together. And one of the great benefits before I go to that is, you know, with the Scum system, what we were able to do is, you know, you could just have your, your background artist draw really simple sketches and go, oh, it's an island. Okay, there, we're going to have this volcano here, and there's an island shape like this. Oh, and we've got the circus, so we'll draw some circus. And you could just really, really quickly throw those, you know, scan those and throw those into the game and begin connecting and go, okay, where do we want the circus on the island? Okay, you click on there, and then the, you know, the, even if it was just a pencil sketch of a circus, you got this very quick sense of what your game universe was going to be like. And you might go, oh, you know, I came in from the right side or I left going out the door on the right on this room. I want to make sure it's blocked properly so that I now come in from the left side of the next room. So you, you want to make sure things are connected. It's really easy to go to your artist and say, hey, I need you to flip this screen you know, while it's a black and white pencil sketch and get all those issues resolved before the whole thing is drawn. And you've got, you know, it, you know, it's like figure that stuff out early. So building a brand new engine to me did not make a lot of sense, but, you know, Brian, you know, carried a lot of, a lot of weight and a background and we, you know, we offered whatever we could help, but it was, you know, it's like, no, we're going to do this thing. It's going to be super ambitious I think, so my recollection, I didn't keep a list of this, but it was like, I think Brian doing it with, with story droid or whatever he called it. And then the next was, I think Noah took over and he brought it back to scum. And I don't think Noah liked Brian's, you know, design for the aliens. So I think one was like this, I think Brian's was a very jungly and a natural, you know, lots of flying aliens and things like that, you know, and six-legged creatures or eight-legged creatures, whatever it was. And then Noah sort of changed that whole style to the same style, but using scum. But then Noah left. And then I think Sean and, um, oh goodness, it wasn't Tony, Mike, probably Mike Stemley. I think they came in and they basically said, okay, well, we've got this art. Let's just see what we can build from this and how quickly we can get this project done. So, you know, they they built on the pieces that that Noah had, but there's a whole another version of the dig which is Brian's version of the dig that I don't know what remnants of that remain. And I think one of the conditions was at that time I was actually working on a uh, a project that I'd inherited called uh actually Mike came up with the name. It was it was basically a post-World War II indie story where you know, I wanted Indy to be a little bit tougher. You know, in the early stories, you know, the Nazis were just bad guys and they were a little, you know, you could almost poke fun at them. But after World War II, I wanted an Indy who'd seen the atrocities of, of, of what the Nazis had did, had done. And he ends up teaming up with a, a Russian sniper, a woman who she had been captured by the Germans and had been in a, a German POW camp with the Russians there 
And uh, the POW commander was sort of this Mengele type character where he was using the Russians to do experiments on. And so there are lots of very deep emotions. And there's also, of course, the, you know, Indy with any woman, there's always this interesting interaction going on there. So the the neo-Nazis, the war is over, they've moved to South America, they're trying to basically restart the war. So they can use pitch blend, which has low amounts of, of not uranium, but uh, atomic activity. And if they could refine that, they might have been able to create a, a nuclear bomb. And the Russians found where, where Hitler had committed suicide. So they had a piece of his skull, and that's actually stolen from the Russians. And so, so the neo-Nazis are, have got this thing, and they, they, using that piece of Hitler's skull, want to bring Hitler back, uranium back. And what was the third part of it? Oh, there's a, another piece that could create, uh, basically, people could resurrect as themselves, or they could uh, reincarnate. Yeah over and over again. And so that piece ended up in Tibet and there's a Tibetan monk who's basically reincarnating, but he's protecting that piece. So there's this story that I was developing and I was going to work with a Canadian team to build that. And I think when, after all of the other challenges with the dig, one of the agreements with Mike and Sean was, you know, we need somebody full-time working on the system. We can't have Eric off working on a game design. So I came back to basically build the game engine for the dig. And uh, the only thing I have to show for, for the work that I did is I got some great design docs on it, but actually they, it got turned into a four part comic book by dark horse comics. So at least there's awesome. a piece of it that got out into the public. Well, I also remember the kind of complete change of style into the, into the comic style as well uh, with, with the scum engine you mentioned earlier, you know, Day of the Tentacle and uh, the talking in there, and also uh, how absolutely amazing Sam and Max was. But the um, kind of insane moment for me was when I saw Full Throttle for the first time with that uh, amazing video intro, and uh, my jaw hit the floor. And um, how how much did the kind of insane video engine help with uh, Full Throttle and Scum? Yeah, that was, you know, that was a game that, Somebody would boot it up in, inside any organization and the music from the Gone Jackals and people would just like, you know, it's like, what the heck's going on? And they would, you know, you'd hear these stories when people first saw it and just being completely blown away by that. So Insane was, it was Vince Lee's engine and uh, Vince I'd hired internally to do our Amiga programming and... I came into my office one day and Vince was talking about this new project and, and I hadn't heard about it. And he'd had dinner with our corporate president at the time. And, and it's like, Oh yeah, we might get to some funding to do this. And he was all excited about doing it. And it's, I went into the president's office and I closed the door and it's like, uh, can you tell me about this dinner you had last night? Cause I've got one of my engineers who's, you know, starting to starting up on a new project and I haven't even heard about it. And he kind of tried to back out a little bit and say, oh, I didn't really offer him the job. And and uh, and I said, well, do you think he might have the impression? Well, yeah, he could have that impression. I said, you know, the project is great. I said, just next time, let me know first. So Vince uh, built Rebel Assault and Rebel Assault 2 and built the Insane Engine. So he had sort of seen what I had done building Scum and isolating the 
machine independent code. And I think he took it up to another level because he built those were, that. Those were great games as well. Uh, oh, those. just yeah. amazing, amazing breakthroughs. And, uh, you know, getting it to run on some of those early uh, CD-ROM systems that really weren't well, you know, the, the specs for those were not as well designed as you would hope. And some of them, they would interpret the specs differently. So things that worked on some CD drives wouldn't work on others. And Vince eventually ran into a whole series of CD drives that just could not load data and run the game at the same time. So he moved the entire game to run out of interrupt. So it was basically, you know, the clock would would click every once in a while and he'd do all the graphics and everything else. And then the main code was doing nothing but loading the data. That's all. Yeah. So he completely flipped everything upside down just to get it to run on these certain CD drives that were so badly designed in my view. So, you know, that technology existed. And after Rebel One, Vince basically rewrote the system, documented the system. And I think even for, it was after Full Throttle. So it was for, for Curse of Monkey Island. I actually took the scum engine and took the the bottom bottom part of the code and rebuilt my engine to run on top of Vince's insane engine because I figured, you know, he was a, a really good coder and uh, had solved a lot of problems. And we wanted certainly to have that streaming technology uh, properly in- integrated into the SCUM engine. Throttle was basically two engines. So it was the scum engine and the insane engine, and you would go in and out. So literally you'd load up the insane engine and you'd run the opening and then you'd load the scum engine in and then you'd find uh, Ben inside the dumpster trying to get himself out. So you'd, you yeah. know, every time you'd go back and forth between the engine, it was the two engines separated. But by, I think it was... And the whole interface, added. the whole interface as well was uh, completely different. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it, and it was kind of like, wow, this, this is still a scum game, but it, it, it kind of didn't feel like it because it, 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 it pushed it so far. Right. So you, you, you had that whole, what was it like a tattoo interface, you know, with the fit, you know, so it still had some of the verbs, but now they were done, you know, in a different manner. And, you know, and that was one of the things that, you know, the, the system itself, I think was pretty remarkable in its versatility. You know, Hal Barwood had a background in movie making. He had directed Dragon Slayer, and he was basically able to, on day one, walk in, and we taught him this, you know, the scum system, and and Sean and Mike as scripters, and I think Ron Baldwin and a couple of other scripters with him, did Indiana Jones' Fate of Atlantis as his very first project. And that is one of the most ambitious, you know, adventure games that had ever been built, and it's done beautifully. And yet... I know that there are times Hal still felt that the scum system was, you know, had limitations. It's like, wait, you just built the biggest thing in the world. And I think one time he described using scum as like trying to push an elephant with a pencil eraser. It's like, you know, it's like, ah, it still takes too much work. It's like, well, but you haven't seen anything else. You're only comparing it to what you know. And everybody who tried to build something else, you know, went and struggled with it. And yeah, there was certainly the the first version of the dig. We also saw uh, Tim with his experience with uh, Grim Fandango, mm. which was you know again an adventure game, but with a non adventure game system. And I'm still wondering, you know, should that have been done with Scum 
I don't know. That was I, the I uh, residual engine, wasn't the it? The grime engine, wasn't it? The gri- It was grime. Yeah. yeah. Ah. Mm. And I look at that and go, you know, how, what, you know, if could I have given it a percentage and gone, could you have built 95% of that? And I just needed to put in 3D actor drawing. But, you know, the, the lesson that I learned is I never forced anybody to use the system. It was always their choice. It was, you know, if whatever they were wanting to build with it, I would find, you know, I would support them in any way I could. I'd put in the features that they wanted. One example is I think at the end of Fate of Atlantis, there's this beautiful fade where Indy and Sophia are in the submarine at the end. And they're looking at a sunset and that sunset fades into a night sky and then stars appear. And then there's this, you know, uh, uh, shooting star that goes across it. And they were convinced it was like, oh, the scum system is too slow. I can't do this fade. Well, as it turned out, it was just the way they were doing the fade was mathematically uh, very complicated. And you just needed to find a new way to do it where you do the math one, the calculation one time, and then all you have to do is do addition after that. And so it could have been done in scum. Uh, It it turns out the interpreter never ran more than one or 2% of the, the CPU. It was usually, you know, the larger percentages were the graphics engine and, you know, drawing the pixels and, and drawing things out to the, the hardware, the interpreted language was basically pennies, you know, of the time spent doing the calculations. But in this case, yeah, doing all doing multiplies and divides on every single red, green, blue pixel color combination. Well, you just do that divide, you know, the multiply and the divide once, and then you can, like I said, you just do it with addition. And now that's really fast. <laughs> so that was one command that I put in there. But I really never made it a permanent command. It was just a, well, it, it, it could have actually been done in Scum, but it wasn't worth the fight to show the team how it could be done as, as, as a script. It was just like, okay, I did it. Let's just let's just ship the product and, and get this one done here. I think, you know, the, the last major game at Lucas that used the Scum engine was Curse of Monkey Island that came out in 1997. And that was, you know, one reason that I left the Amiga behind and got a PC. Because I wanted to play uh-huh. that game, and it was an incredible game. And you mentioned about the interface changes there as well, and that really simplified everything. I mean, rather than having the inventory at the bottom and the menus, it was all just you know pop up action menus, and you had the inventory chest as well. Really logical, really streamlined too. I mean, was it kind of difficult to improve it to that level? And uh, um, why do you think that was the last game before they moved into the grime engine? And were you disappointed that they didn't continue with Scum? You know, I. I, I take a lot of pride in that last, you know, in in Curse because it was such a beautiful game, and the animation was so stunning, and then the fully integrated insane engine, and the you know the opening scene with the the video on it, and it was like, oh man, this is just it's just so you know it's so lovely to look at, and the one thing though that I really wish I had had found time to do was I wish I could have rewritten the animation system using splines and basically, you know, using letting the artists actually define the animation in curves the same way they do that in a lot of, uh, you know, cell-based animation uh, where you could basically say, Oh, here, let me just pick three points and draw the curve. And the reason you'd want to do that is now I could take and I could scale those three points mathematically very quickly and it would still generate the same curve. And, 
now I could have gone from 640-480 to 800 by 600 or whatever resolution, and these characters would still have beautiful fine lines, but you know, drawn between them. And and maybe that's what would have happened after Curse is I really wanted to be drawing towards or moving towards drawing technology that was independent of the resolution. So, you know, whatever your screen was, you're running a 4K TV screen. Why shouldn't you have a 4K, you know, animated character drawn on top of it? And even if the backgrounds had to be hand-drawn and scaled and we found other ways to do that, the char- we, a lot of time and effort went into the characters and the drawing and the animating of the characters. And I would have loved to have seen sort of at least one more generation of the system that basically made it one where wherever the future went, you know, the animation and that work would, would fill the, fill the space beautifully. You know, I sort of looked at, you know, as we talked about how the system evolved, you know, we started out with very simple, you know, chip based audio. So, you know, the Commodore 64 had, I think it was this, was it the SID chip was their audio chip yeah. and it could do three channels and things like that. And then we moved to the Amiga and we could do digital sound effects. And then eventually, you know, on the PC with CD, we could do digital voice. And then with later versions of iMuse, we could run multiple digital channels along with digital voice. And to me, what was amazing about that was I could see where audio, once you could get to, you know, 16-bit audio and 44K hertz, which is basically a, a CD audio standard, that's pretty much as good as I can hear. It's yeah. probably better than I can hear. Better than 90% of the, you know, sure, there maybe there are going to be audio files out there that can hear the difference between 44K hertz and 48K. But what I saw was we had found our way to one aspect of our games, which was the audio aspect, which is, this is about as good as you're ever going to need. So we can basically, we found our holy grail with audio. Now, maybe we, you know, there were still going to be some improvements, but we can sort of put our check box next to that is we figured out that technology. And I would have liked to have taken the next check box being, how can we make the graphics so that wherever the graphics go, we're doing as good as the display technology is capable. And so I think that that would have still been a, a, a fun uh, evolutionary step because, you know, I think that one of the criticisms of Scum was that it was revolutionary, or I should say it was, it was more evolutionary than revolutionary. So there was a lot of the revolution that occurred early on, mm. and then we just kept slowly and incrementally evolving it after, after that big revolution to improve the audio, to improve the visual, to improve the interfaces. We were always pushing and going, looking for what's the next way to do it. What's, what's going to be, what's going to make this better? What's going to make this easier to use? And that's where the scum system was so versatile that you could do all the different interfaces. You could implement loom on it, which was the first time we put graphics, you know, below the screen space. And then you, could do these, you know, interfaces like the throttle interface and the curse interface where the designers had the freedom to be able to evolve the, you know, the interfaces. And I think that we would have continued to evolve it. But you know what I find really funny is we're having this conversation. I'm sitting here with on my MacBook and I'm looking at the interface with the finder and my browser and 
and the settings screen and my email screen in this bar across the bottom of it. (laughs) And you know what it looks a hell of a lot like? It looks a hell of a lot like a scum interface. Yeah. Now you mentioned it. I'm looking at mine, the dock in the bottom. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, wait, instead of verbs, we have applications. But in some ways, applications are verbs. But, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know if they were evolving towards us. We were certainly around a lot, lot, lot earlier than this. But the fact that, you know, they face the same issues. They've, you know, both Windows and, and Mac, their interfaces have been evolving the same way we found, you know, to evolve our interfaces. And fortunately, I think there's much less pushback on our interfaces and our, our evolving interface. You know, it's like if you change the interface on my MacBook, I'm going to grumble a whole bunch if, if there's some aspect of it that I just, you know, I, oh, I like the way it used to work. Yeah. But I don't think we ever had that. I think people saw the evolution as, of our interfaces. And, you know, initially it's like, oh, I've got to figure this out a little bit. But we'd always give them like a, a little playground. I think in Monkey Curse, you it was when you first met Wally and you were trying to figure out, you know, how the interface worked in the first the first rooms there. And and you and by the time you left that room, I think you were pretty comfortable, uh, whether you were a new user or a longtime user. By the time you left the first room, you were pretty comfortable with how how you were going to control the game. There was enough that you felt familiarity, and then enough that you were excited about what you might be able to do with the new interface. I mean, looking forward to, you know, more modern times, Eric. I mean, obviously those games have got an incredible legacy. And what do you think of projects like, you know, for example, ScumVM and the fan community that keep those games alive to this day? You know, I I feel kind of blessed. I, I, I The fact that there are people out there that love the work that you did so much so that they're willing to devote their themselves to it. You know, it's, it's I, I mentioned to the uh, I mentioned the the the, the slight one that the uh, person from uh, from uh, Sierra Online made, and mm. I was you know I was I, I made some comment about games, and and they tried to make some slight about well nobody would want to you know would want your life or something like that, and I'm going, wait a second, everybody at this conference wants my life, you know, it's like. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a freaking game developer and I've been doing it now for a decade. And these people are paying money to be here to have my life. You know, they, they want to be making games like I've been doing. Here are people that, that are looking at what I did and they want to learn. They want to figure out how did we do this? How did we pull this off? You know, what is their compression scheme? You, I was contacted recently by a group that's, that's basically keeping Habitat running. This is a project from what, 19, I don't know all the dates, 87, 90, whenever it was. And they want to basically preserve the very first MMORPG, mm. you know, which a word we hadn't even invented at the time we were doing it as, as basically as a historical piece. And they're finding things, you know, they, they, there was a complete code dump uh, that they'd gotten their hands on and they were finding things in there with my fingerprints on it. And asking me about, it's like, oh, I f- completely forgot about that. And, and then they'd send me this folder. It's like, here's an entire directory with my name on it, with all these things in it. What do you know about this? And it's, I, it's not, heady isn't quite, quite the right word, but it's, you know, knowing that people are trying to preserve this. When I came from the cinema background, and one of the things you learn about cinema is how much 
of cinematic history is lost. Mm. We might only have a poster of this cowboy movie that somebody saved, but cinema and film as a medium only had a, a, a very limited shelf life. So, so many of the black and white movies are just gone. Nobody, nobody preserved them and they sat on shelves and the cellulite that they were made from deteriorated and the silver, you know, began to flake off the, the material. And there's no way to get that back. It's, it's like playing music. You know, when I was a musician, you sort of learned that you would play a piece and then it would disappear into the ether. Mm. It's gone forever, except maybe in some vibration in the universe, does that piece of music still exist? And the, yes, you can record it, but it's, but it's all that other music that was created. And so much of cinema has, has disappeared in, into the ether. And so, you know, being a bit of a historian and maybe bringing in that cinematic background, I, I had the sense that we were doing something that historically in the future, there might be people interested in it. We were creating a new medium. And so there were documents that I'd saved and documents that are, you know, right now back, back at the, the LucasArts archives, all the old game design documents where somebody may want to look back at this and go, what were the, you know, where did this concept come from? You know, I've tried to keep the source code and the scripts for the various systems. Part of it was for my own CYA in a way, because I was always fearful that somebody was going to go, hey, Eric, I know you haven't worked for the company for 10 years, but we've decided we're going to try to build a new version of this. And we're sure hoping that you've got, you know, you, you know where we can find the code for this. It's like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's very rewarding that people like the, the groups doing ScumVM see this as history and are working to, to preserve it, which to me is remarkable. And, you know, I think recently I asked about like all the humongous games because so many of those were built on the scum system as well. And, but they've sort of, you know, they've sort of drawn a bound, you know, a boundary layer of, you know, primarily focusing on, you know, the, the Lucas adventure games, Mm. but the, you know, all of the children's games, I'd love to see those preserved as well because those systems were, in many ways, very close, if not nearly identical. Certainly the very first versions of their games, I could run them on our system uh, with no changes at all, and and their games would run uh, on the, the Lucas version of Scum. Yeah, and I think it is really important that they are preserved and, you know, absolutely incredible that they are. I mean, you know, speaking personally as a kid that grew up playing the games that you're responsible for and guys like Ron and Brian, I mean, you know, they were games that influenced my formative years and made me fall in love with video games and you know without those games I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today you know this podcast wouldn't exist so uh, I just want to say a big thank you Eric and for the amazing work that you did and also a huge thank you for uh, coming on and sharing some of your insights and memories as well it's been absolutely incredible to talk to you well it's absolutely my pleasure and and hopefully some someday somebody will get together and say we want to talk to you about all those podcasts and tell us stories about <laughs> You know, the people that you met and talked to. And, and again, congratulations on your 400th. Uh, that's really quite an achievement. You know, uh, here's for the next 400. Yeah, here's to it. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been uh, absolutely incredible to talk to you. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you.